place looks like a nice middle-class neighborhood. I'm driving through the neighborhood looking for the infamous blue house with the black eagle. You know, the house Phyllis saw two streets away from the house where she was raped. I'm curious to see what the house looks like today, more than 30 years after Phyllis filed it away in that photographic memory of hers. Oh my God, is that it? It's been what, 39 years since Phyllis put Samuel Herring behind bars? And yet, driving through this neighborhood, it all seems like it went down yesterday. That evil still lingers here. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it feels that way. It's partly why Phyllis's daughter, Diane, makes it a point to protect herself and her family and to stay away from this part of Akron. I had to go over there for um, my concealed carry. And going over there, I David had to drive me because I wouldn't go over there. Same. Just the street sign sends shivers up my spine. It really does. I'm just like, get let's get into the building. Let's yeah. do our business and get out of this neighborhood. I asked Phyllis about that house. Of course I did. And she talked about it in a way I did not expect. She told me a woman approached her right after Herring was convicted on all counts. She was surrounded by reporters, photographers, court watchers, everyone, when suddenly a woman approached and pointed to someone who desperately wanted to talk with her. Here's Phyllis. Somebody came up to me and said, uh, Phyllis, there's a, a young woman here who would like to talk to you for a minute. And I think she was the one that told me that her grandmother and grandfather used to own that blue house. And her grandmother was raped and murdered, but they thought Herring had done it. But there was no evidence. She said, we, we all felt it done it, but there was no evidence pointing to him. If you didn't catch that, a young woman told Phyllis her grandmother was raped and murdered in that blue house with the Black Eagle. And she suspected Herring was the man who had done it. There's no proof of that, but... Wow. Oh God, I have goosebumps. I'm pulling up to the house now, the house that Phyllis saw while she sat tied up and terrified on the Herring family's back porch. As God is my witness, the house looks exactly the same. Blue with white trim and a black eagle. That's just creepy. I'm Carol Costello. This is Blind Rage, Episode 12. The fight continues. After the trial, Phyllis learned to live again. She was blind, but determined. She became an awesome cook, gardened again, and learned just enough Braille to get by. There were challenges, too. As she told the Akron Beacon Journal, she couldn't drive a car or even walk across the street because she said, quote, you know how people drive. A door left half open or a footstool not returned to its proper place led to bumps and bruises, but she would not be defeated. Here's Drew, Phyllis's granddaughter. She had a cane, yeah, but she didn't use it. She relied on memory. Like, you could be driving and she'd be like, well, you just missed the turn. And you're like... Excuse me? <laughs> ah, that photographic memory. She was so independent and she was just like, I'm going to do this myself. I'm not going to rely on anybody because, I mean, obviously there, you have to rely on somebody to drive, whatever, but everything that she could do, she was like, I'm going to do myself, I think. 
Dolores, the former sheriff's deputy who sat with Phyllis in her hospital room all those years ago and watched Dallas with Phyllis, became her best friend. The remarkable thing, I would go and I didn't think of her as being blind. I forget that she was blind. We'd be walking somewhere and I would get ahead of her and forget, you know, she would have my arm. You know, you just, that's how she was. You would forget she was blind. Phyllis learned to swim and play the guitar. She traveled to Hawaii and learned, as she put it, to appreciate her other senses. I've been to hell and now I'm back, she said. What, what gives you that strength of, you know, I'll tell you, Carol, there are an awful lot of people out there that have gone through things that I don't know if I would have had the strength to do what they did. I have always admired people that have overcome obstacles. There were still so many obstacles for Phyllis to overcome. She worked with counselors to cope with her kidnapping and rape. And the fact her convicted rapist would not leave her alone. Samuel Herring, now behind bars, sent Phyllis letters, ugly letters. Here's Diane. He was writing letters to my mom Mm -hmm. saying that, oh, he had the wrong guy and she's all wrong. Then the letters kind of turned to a more nasty nature, saying that she was going to burn in hell because, you know, she got him in prison and he's innocent and blah, 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 blah. And I finally told her, I said, you know what? Don't even open them. Just throw them in the trash. Through it all, Phyllis found a new purpose in life. She became a political activist. Number one on her agenda? Reform the parole board. She filed a pioneering $10 million lawsuit against the individual members of the Ohio Parole Board for granting Herring an early release against the advice of prosecutors. Number two on Phyllis's agenda? Fighting for legislation to aid the blind and to press for laws to keep violent offenders behind bars. She testified before state legislators and before Congress. And number three, Phyllis became a public speaker who told her story in every kind of forum. And those talks were inspirational in important ways. Here's Dolores. Did she tell you at any point that um, a woman any women came up to her and said, thank you, I was raped. Can you just describe that for us? It was a black girl. And she said she was a victim of herring and she's never talked to anybody before about it. And she talked to Phyllis and she gave her a big hug and cried, you know. I kind of stayed back away from it. That was their moment. And, um, but she- so can you d- just- re-describe that for us. What did Phyllis say the girl told her? Sam Herring had raped her, and she never um, told anybody about it before. Phyllis was the first person she talked to. How did Phyllis react to that? It was typical Phyllis. She, She gave her a hug, you know, she talked to her, and, you know, tried to give her encouragement and stuff, and that was it. I've always wondered if that young woman had been Herring's girlfriend, the one who tried to escape him by attempting suicide. She was being recognized as a leader. People saw that name Phyllis Cottle, whether it was in the blind center, you know, or victim's assistance or whatever she was doing or just her recovery in and of itself was inspiring to people. Larry Volleman was one of the lawyers who represented Phyllis in her case against the Ohio Parole Board, a case they would eventually settle. Larry told me something astonishing about Phyllis, though. 
something that left me speechless. One time we were talking, uh, and I said, uh, Phil, if you could go back to March 1984, your sight is restored. You're well, you know, physically. You got it all back together as it was back then. Would you go back there if that kind of miracle could happen? And she says, no, Larry. And and as we were talking, essentially what she was telling me was, Larry, I have a sense of meaning and purpose about my life right now that I never had back then. She said, you know, in her own way, she was alive and she was well and uh, she was heroic and she was a leader. I still can't wrap my head around that one. There was no bitterness in Phyllis. Anger, yes, at Samuel Herring, but she was not bitter. Remember Terry, the ex-con who heard Phyllis scream and cry for help, who witnessed Herring hit Phyllis and then carjack her? The man who infuriated Phyllis's granddaughter, Samantha, because he did nothing. If I see a woman yelling for help, you know, being pushed and abused by a man, I'm going to step in and be like, Back off, you know, try to get her out of the situation. Terry had not intervened because he thought it was just somebody beating up on his old lady. Weeks later, Terry had a change of heart. His wife convinced him to go to the police after she saw the crime reported on the news. Terry later testified for the prosecution. He was the only witness who saw a man who resembled Herring push a woman into a Buick on West Exchange Street where the crime originated. If I were Phyllis, I would hate Terry. I would carry a what if with me for the rest of my life. What if Terry had intervened? What if he could have saved me? I have to ask you about that. Uh, Terry Fuchs saw it, heard her scream for help, Hmm. and didn't call the police. He testified, right, Mm -hmm. and helped identify Samuel Herring. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, he thought it was a domestic, Mm -hmm. and he walked by and didn't think about it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they didn't want, no one really wants to get in the middle of a domestic quarrel, you know. But I will say, and she said this too. She also defended them and was like, "You so she don't had know." No bitterness toward no, no, none towards the people that didn't call. None. I mean, she doesn't even have bitterness towards him. She wanted him to stay in prison, but it wasn't because she was bitter. It was because she doesn't. She never got to see again, and she feared for the rest of her family. I mean, there was no bitterness. I don't towards yeah. those. People I don't think at so all. either. You know, it was. You know, she just made peace with it. More when we return. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing; she'd invested three hundred thousand dollars with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series... And that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. 
that's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. If you're wondering if Phyllis found the ultimate happy ending, she did. His name was Tom. She literally well, fell in love in an instant. Oh, that you asked earlier, you know, would she take back to having her sight? And that was one of the reasons she gave as to why she said she wouldn't <laughs> yeah, take back because she never would have met him. They met, you know, from the blind center. So she mm. never would have met him. And yeah. I mean, yeah, he... Talk about a strong woman that said what she needed to say. He was he was the one that sat down and was like, "Yes, dear." Like, <laughs> yeah. He knew he was. I mean, they they were too. Yeah, they, they, they were, were soulmates. Phyllis Cottle died in 2013, but she and her fight for justice live on. Every 10 years, Samuel Herring comes up for parole, and every time Phyllis's family has fought to keep him in prison for the rest of his life. They've collected thousands of signatures that urged the parole board to deny Herring another early release. I talked with Sherry Walsh, the Summit County prosecutor, about their efforts and the push today to release violent offenders under certain circumstances. Just touching on Samuel Herring and his release, because you know there's a trend right now happening nationally that um, People convicted even of violent crime, if they've been in prison for, you know, more than 30 years, they're in their 60s, um, there's a very small chance that they'll they'll commit a crime again, and we're just wasting money keeping them in jail and incarcerated. Well, we have prosecuted individuals on sexual assault cases in their 70s and into their 80s. So, <laughs> unfortunately, when it comes to someone like Samuel Herring, as violent of a sex offender as that man is, I would never have any belief at all that he wouldn't do it again if he got out. And I'm hopeful that the parole board will always see it that way and that he'll die in prison because he is way high on the list of what I would deem a dangerous offender. It is a sentiment Phyllis's granddaughter, Samantha, shares passionately. You said you promised your grandmother that you would do this. Can you tell me about that? I just, I told her, I said, you know, I know it's your wish. And when your time comes, I will be there to fight your fight. I'm going to make sure your wish stays alive. No matter what, I'm going to be this guy's worst nightmare. I'm going to be there, and I'm going to fight. No matter what I got to do, I'm going to keep her wish alive. 
and I'm going to honor that wish. Samuel J. Herring has never admitted guilt. He is still fighting to get out of prison, and there is a chance he might. I can't tell you about that right now, not quite yet, but when I can, I will. I'm going to take some time to figure things out, so as they say, stay tuned. If there is a new development, we'll drop a new episode. In the meantime, I'll work on bonus episodes for you. There is so much more to tell. A personal note. At times, this podcast was painful for me to write. Phyllis's story is intense and deeply personal. It brings back memories from my own past I'd rather forget. Still, I think the 22-year-old me would be grateful. That hurt, confused, yet ambitious young woman who steamrolled her way over trauma instead of dealing with it would say, it's about time. Yeah, it's about time. As Phyllis told me, it's about time to be happy because you can't sit in a corner and cry for the rest of your life. You can survive. You can be happy. So maybe I should say, thank you, Phyllis Cottle. You are one badass woman. Costello Presents Blind Rage is a signature show of the Killer Podcast Network. If you enjoy this series, please subscribe and rate it on your favorite listening apps and discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. And if you want to discover more about this case, follow me on Instagram at Carol Costello. You'll find pictures of Phyllis, newspaper reports, crime scene photos, and more. Blind Rage is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Carol Costello. This episode was produced by Chris Iola and me, Carol Costello. Additional thanks to audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, contributor Nyjah Galladay, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Original music is composed by Timothy Law Snyder. Our voice of the court is Douglas F. Bailey II. All of the information in this podcast came from my memories of the event. Phyllis Cottle, her family members and friends, former law enforcement, prosecutors, former and current journalists, police reports, and court documents. I've tried to tell this story factually to the best of my ability, but sometimes memory fails. It's been a long time, but my goal is simple. Phyllis was an amazing woman, and her story of courage should be shared. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.